Welcome back to the Admissions Uncovered podcast. It's the college admissions podcast for the students, by the students. Today, we'll be talking to a friend I met over at Reddit's Applying to College subreddit, my friend Alexandra. We'll be talking about her college admissions journey, where she grew up and how that affected it, and also her decision of school. She is going to Bowdoin next year, up in Maine. So Alexandra, why don't you introduce yourself for the listeners? Hi, I'm Alexandra Lynn. I'm from Missoula, Montana, and uh, I'm a grad- I'm an incoming freshman at Bowdoin College. Do you want to start talking about my admissions process? Yeah. Why don't you tell the viewers where you're from? Because when you told me, I was very, I don't know, I thought it was cool. <laughs> so I'm from Missoula, Montana, and I go to Big Sky High School, which is a great high school, but sadly doesn't have that high of a college entrance rate. So I think it's about 25, 30% this year. And very few people leave the state. It's not really that type of type of school. And I think that my school, like a lot of schools in rural, rural areas in America, kind of represent the divide between education. I think that it's really easy to see college admissions through a very specific lens, like through elite colleges, but there's so many other applicants who are going to different schools. So I'm actually one of the only 20 people of my graduating class of 300 people to be leaving the state, which is pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. You know, I grew up in the suburbs of Dallas, so very similar type of experience where most of the kids were just going to in-state schools, um, in-state public schools, sometimes in-state private schools, but staying fairly local. If anything, venturing out to like Austin instead of Dallas, which is, I'll be frank, not that crazy of a, of a difference. So I definitely understand that that feeling of most kids staying in-state. Did that give you any pressure to maybe not apply out of state do you feel like so at first I was wondering like oh maybe I should just stay in state it's more affordable the education's good and I think especially the fear of leaving home and going somewhere so different and luckily Maine's actually kind of similar to Montana so it's not won't be too bad but I think that it's really easy to get caught up in the fear of leaving and not be looking to seek new experiences. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about leaving. And I'm actually, weirdly enough, I'm going to be the third person from my high school to be going to Bowdoin. There's another girl who's a sophomore there who went to my high school. So you already know people there. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so do you know of people at your high school who maybe could have gotten to some of the schools you got into, some of the out-of-state schools that you got into, but just didn't apply because they just thought, I'll just stay in Montana? So actually, there was my, my really good friend. Um, she was low. She's pretty low income. She applied early to Barnard, and she had like pretty good stats. But she had a really tragic backstory. Mm. Like her mom was like um, a meth addict, oh, no. and her dad was like unemployed, and yeah, and she had like nine siblings. And I think that the difficulty is that when like my high school is fifty percent free and reduced lunch, a lot of people are low income. I think that when you're dealing with situations like that, like many people who live in just average rural America who are low income, it's not necessarily leaving the state, but leaving behind responsibilities right. that I think that people are like feel responsible. And, I, and she's great. Um, and she, I think that she, uh, she got in, but she ended up choosing, she had to withdraw her offer or like withdraw her early decision acceptance or oh, something no. like that. And she's going to UMont. She's going to University of Montana next year. I mean, I think that for her, she like had to make a lot of decisions about like her family and what she needed to do. But I think that it's sad that people have to make those decisions. I think it definitely showed me a different side of the admissions process. That for some people, 
it like going to school like Barnard to going to a school like Columbia really does make a difference in someone's life and it's kind of disappointing when they're not able to take those opportunities so we should be lucky people who are going to school like we should all be very appreciative yeah absolutely and you know I think that speaks to one of the big under-focused areas when it comes to thinking about diversity in college admissions because the you know the thing is like conservatives get all riled up about race and affirmative action. And I think there's like a reasonable debate to be had there. I obviously have an opinion that affirmative action on race is a good thing. But I think it is also very, very true that there are so many other aspects of diversity that kind of get papered over or ignored. And the rural urban thing is definitely one of them. I think I think one of the things that maybe it's just me and where I grew up is that whenever I thought poverty. I never really thought of rural America, right? I I think the picture that comes to mind for perhaps not the best reasons is like urban areas, city areas, downtown areas, when in fact there is plenty of poverty and plenty of like need in rural areas as well. Mm -hmm. So actually I did my senior project on rural um, poverty Mm -hmm. because I'm really interested in public transportation. And interestingly enough, like a lot of the people who are like low income in the area, like the reason why is because of the lack of jobs and the way that our economy is shifting. And I think that the difficulty is that as it occurs, like a lot of brain drain really does happen. Like the best and the brightest of our state always do leave and very few, very like often, like not very often do they right. come back. So I think that we have to like kind of incentivize people to like also come back to the rural areas. And, and so like you were saying with diversity, I think that the difficulty is is that it's really difficult i think to find an applicant who is really spectacular from rural areas like i never heard of the sat2s until the end of my junior right. year right before i couldn't take them anymore like things like intel or like the uasbo or all these types of like things that people at other schools that's just like a known thing i had no idea and so luckily like the internet and things like reddit and college confidential were really helpful tools but i know like now it's really difficult i think to have access to that when a school's culture really isn't that it really isn't geared towards that type of school yeah or just that type of type of student. No, I, I think that's so, so, so true, right? Because one of the things I think admissions officers say about holistic admissions is that, you know, it lets them take in context the whole applicant, which, you know, lets them take into account other factors. And to some extent, I think that's true. But what holistic admissions to me has become is a real emphasis on extracurricular activities, which can be as, like, racialized and as stratified on class lines as the SAT, right? Like, mm-hmm. I have not heard of any public school with a horseback riding program, right? Yeah. But, like, that's a thing. I mean, in Montana, you okay, never know. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> um, but, like, the only schools I've heard those have, like, have those programs are, you know, your Exeters, your kind of, like, big name boarding schools. And, you know, mm-hmm. like, there are activities I did in school, like debate, that if I didn't have as much, you know, if I didn't have parents who had like the resources that we do, like I could not have done or I could not have done as successfully. So I I definitely think that's true. Like there's so many things that we just take for granted as things that make the system more fair that might actually not do it. And so when it comes to, you know, extracurriculars in rural activities, in your experience, did you just see less of the big name things? Like what were, what were some of the common extracurriculars at your school? I think that for me, I think that a lot of the extracurricular differences is that a lot of the people that I know who are going to Bowdoin or like elite schools next year 
a lot of their extracurriculars were like suggested to them by college admissions mm. counselors. So a lot of times it would be like things out of school. Whereas like at my high school, no one does any extracurriculars out of school. Like a lot of people just expect like, oh, I do National Honor Society. Oh, I'm in debate and a marathon. I'm going to get into Harvard if I have a 4.0 and a 1600 on the SAT. I think that people don't really understand the difficulty and like the type of competition that they're really dealing with. Um, and I think that, I mean, I also, if we're talking about holistic admissions, I totally agree with you. I actually had a pretty low GPA. So I was pretty surprised when I got into a lot of selective universities. And I do think that a lot of people have been saying like, oh, affirmative action. But I do think that sadly, like I think I benefited from affirmative action in a different manner. I think that there is like geographic affirmative action. So I think they really do look at people, not only in the context of their race, but also I think of their right. region. I think that like also, I think that when people are making arguments about that, I think that they also have to think about that as well. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think you're right, right? Like I think because one of the statistics schools love to brag about is, you know, we have a student from every single state in the union and a student from 102 countries throughout the entire world. Like, they love to throw around those those numbers. And so if they like to throw them around, that means they value geographic diversity, too. Mm-hmm. In my view, at least, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Because I do think my college experience would be worse if I was in a classroom with only like Asian kids and and like white kids, right? Like that's my view on race-based mm-hmm. affirmative action. And I think it would also be substantially worse if I was only in a classroom with kids from New York, Texas, and California, um, or or you know the the big states, right? Like I think I think all the reasons why all the things we've talked about about how there is a difference between going to a school in a rural area and going to school in an urban or a suburban context means it's just so important to have students from other backgrounds, whether it's racial backgrounds, but also geographic backgrounds. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that it's something that we really need to think about when, I think that I just need to think about when we think about what diversity really means, like you were saying before. Yeah. So I did want to ask you one more question about growing up kind of in a rural area. You know, obviously like, transportation is very hard were there other difficulties that you saw in living in a rural area that might have affected you know your high school education or your college admissions process so yeah so when i was a junior i was looking for act tutoring and there actually isn't any act tutor there aren't any act tutors like within an hour range of where i live and so, so it was really difficult because at first I just really didn't know what to do. And so like, luckily I had to tutor myself and teach myself and I ended up doing pretty well. But I think that just trying to, it's, it's, it's saying one thing, like it's one thing to like, oh, you can't afford to get an AC tutor, but it's another thing that you can't even get one if you right. can afford to have one. I mean, it's a totally different thing. And I think that it's difficult because a lot of the extracurriculars that I know, like a lot of my friends do, like we have to kind of make our own extracurriculars if we really want to stretch ourselves and leave our comfort zones. And I think that's something that a lot of people, I think that's something that's actually really beneficial about living in a rural area and growing up there is that like, I know for me, there weren't, I didn't feel really challenged by the things that I was doing outside of school and like the programs that already existed. So I just was able to like start my own and do my own things and really have that freedom because I think in Montana, there isn't as much scrutiny there's not as many people like if you really want to do something you can do it like luckily I was able to like work with the city planning department and like we were able to like reroute the transit like transit lines to make it more equitable for income and I know that if I lived in New York that would never be an op like that would never be something I could do and like I got to make a documentary about like the 
um, cities like land usage like and how they use fighter remediation and I got all these like special privileges and I got to go film and I got to go with like the dean of the University of Montana like I think that if I was from New York or if I was from Texas or California a lot of those opportunities that I think you can you can have in Montana you can't have in other places I mean that goes for other states like North Dakota South Dakota but there is something to be said for growing up in a rural area like that and I mean of course it's also really pretty for sure <laughs> Um, and I guess that's kind of the small impression I get of small towns, right? It's small enough that everybody mm-hmm. knows each other by first name. Like if you go to church, mm-hmm. it's like 10 people in a room. Um, and maybe that's like too idyllic of a view, but I-, I think there definitely is something to, you know, growing up in a small town and the type of community that involves versus growing up in a massive city where you don't even know the people living on in your apartment building, let alone the people, you know, in the building next to you or something like that. I think that the one thing that it does do is I think it does instill a deeper sense of community. So I feel really strongly about like the issues that face my community, but I know a lot of people who live in more urban areas. I don't think they have that same connection to the community just because they don't really interact with the people on a daily basis or the people who are like their neighbors because they don't know who they are. I think that's something that's really important. I think that's like a value that that's like something that when college are stating like, oh, we have 50, everyone 50, like one person from all 50 states. That's another thing you have to think about is that growing up in a tight, close, like tight knit community, like you really do have a different sense of like what that means. And I think when you go to a college campus, I think you can definitely see that. I definitely want to get into maybe how your background as someone who grew up in small towns affected your choice of college. But before we Mm -hmm. move on from like your background as a rural student, I was wondering if you had any resources for rural students uh, specifically or just resources that you found helpful through the college admissions process? So yeah, I had a lot lot of um, resources. So there was, I got, luckily, like, I had help from a local lady who does, like, college admissions. She does, like, um, a sliding scale of financial. So, like, my family was, like, really expensive. And so I didn't know this, but college admissions counselors, some of them do, like, sliding scale. And so some people do it pro bono. So that was something really interesting that, like, that people with your low income, you can have access to. Um, like, college admissions counselors aren't necessarily only for people who are really rich. And then um, also, like, applying to college and College Confidential are really helpful resources, I think. I think especially just looking at new schools. Like, I never knew that, like, schools like Pomona or Claremont McKenna or Bowdoin even existed before, like, going on those forums and reading about, like, what type, type different types of schools are. And I think that also just the internet. We're in the information golden age and, like, colleges and so many institutions and have so much information available. You just have to, like, look, be willing to, like, go and try to find it. Oh, for sure. I definitely agree. And I also think the great thing about Reddit and College Confidential is, you know, like, it's a little bit weird and toxic sometimes, especially with the chance me's where you have, like, the perfect student and the kid in the comment is like, eh, yeah, maybe you have a chance for, like, this school. And it's like, okay, sure. Yeah. But I think there... Everyone was wrong about... I think that a lot of the difficulty with the chance me's is that when high schoolers are, like, grading other yeah. high schoolers or, like, making comments, I think it's just, like, the blind being yeah. blind. Like, how much do you really know about someone else's application? Because if you knew that much, then you would have already, like, you would have already gotten in there before or yeah. something like that. I think it's impossible. And I think that also the, the worst part is that people don't know other people's yeah. backgrounds. Like, you don't know everything about their lives. Like, you don't know what their parents' occupations were. You don't know what like household situation they grew up in they could have been like in an abusive household they could have been fostered kids like that totally changes the context of their application and it doesn't really shine through on the internet and i feel like it's really unfair 
to like make really rude statements about people. Oh, you'll never get into X, Y, Z. But you don't really know that person. You don't know how they interview. I don't feel like it's fair to make those judgment statements about people without really ever knowing them. Yeah, and particularly just like, I, I think there's like this phenomenon when you have peer grading happen that we always grade each other's papers or, or homework assignments harder than the teacher would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I don't know why, whether that's like hyper competitiveness or just like an inability to think about judging other people but i would like i i loved reddit and 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 college confidential because it was a community of people who like me were thinking about applying to a lot of these same schools my school i was the only one who applied to like the big name ivies um so like it felt good to know other people even if it was only through the internet who were doing the same but you know stay calm if your chance me you know doesn't go well yeah, having that community is a really nice feeling to like have that camaraderie, especially when you're going through like really stressful times. I think that really does make a difference. One plug I want to give for an organization that can help you if you're low income and from a rural area is Matriculate. Um, I'm a volunteer with it. And basically what happens is Matriculate pairs high school seniors with college students and the college students kind of like mentor the high school student through the college admissions process. And so it's mainly geared toward low-income people or people from rural and underserved areas. So if you think you might be interested, the website is matriculate.org. So head over there. And I think the applications for high school students are still open. So if you're going to be a high school senior, I think there's still time to, to sign up. But with that, I wanted to transition over to your choice of school and how you got there. So can you tell me a little bit about your college decision process and what you were thinking through it? So should I tell about my like st- um, my like profile and stats? Yeah, before? let's do that. Let's do that. So I had a pretty low GPA. I think I had a three point seven unweighted, and I think I had a three point in my freshman year. So that was like pretty low. A lot of people like told me, "Oh, that's such a bad GPA." And I did well. I had like a thirty four on the ACT. But I think that when I went into the college application process, I was just like. I'm going to apply to an enormous amount of schools because I had no idea what was going to happen. And so I think I applied to like 30 schools. Oh my schools God. And I applied to too many schools. <laughs> and I got, and I think that like my results were really, I was really surprised by like where I got in and where I didn't get in. So I originally really wanted to go to Brown. So I applied their early decision and I got deferred. And then I just waited. And then I applied to like too many schools regular <laughs> decision. So I ended up, um, getting all my decisions back, and I was choosing between Bowdoin, uh, Claremont McKenna, uh, Carleton, Wellesley, and I ended up getting off the waitlist at Stanford. So I was choosing between those schools. Oh, and I was choosing between like a large scholarship at NYU. And I think the reason why I ended up choosing Bowdoin was just because I got I got a merit scholarship to go to Bowdoin. But also I think that when it comes down to it, like I think that the rankings and all like the idea of what prestige is, I think is really relative to the person. So at my school, Bowdoin is like more prestigious than Harvard because we already have someone who's going yeah. there. It's like she was the valedictorian, like a very big deal at our school. And so I guess that it's, it was really interesting because a lot of the schools that I thought would be like, oh more prestigious I think that it's really relative and that's really interesting um but also I think that really like choosing the community where you feel most comfortable so when I got into all these schools my I think my parents were like oh she's 100% going to go to Wellesley I've always been really Really? active in like women's rights issues yeah and I like 
I was really loved my Wellesley interviewer, and I loved Hillary like Rodham of course, Clinton. of course. And I got like a great got a great financial aid package, and I was really like. And when I visited, I just didn't think that it was a good fit. And I think that a lot of people would say like, "Oh, she got into Stanford, and she's not going." And I think that. In the end, I don't really think it matters how prestigious the school is. I think it's really about how it fits you as a person. And I really, I really love the outdoors. I love marine biology. Um, and I'm really excited. There's so many great things at Bowdoin that I'm so excited to get participated in, to participate in. And I feel like I never felt that way about the other programs at different schools. And I think that that's really when you know that you want to go to an institution. And also, I loved my interviewer, who is absolutely great. Funny story, I actually used my Bowdoin interview as practice for my Brown interview. <laughs> I scheduled it right before, and I used it as practice, and I thought it went horribly. But I ended up um, getting a res- response for her that like I was one of her favorite interviewees we spent like 30 minutes talking about slime mold and we sat there for like two and a half hours (laughs) talking about very strange things but I think that really shows that it's not some like interviews and I think the admissions process isn't as serious as we take it like I wrote my college application essay about my sock collection (laughs) and I wrote like a lot of my Stanford essays about like I wrote one of them about um if you want to oh your 50 word uh roommate essay yeah I think I, I wrote about, um, I wrote a parody to The Little Mermaid, <laughs> which talked about quarks and gluons, but all to the beat of um, part of your world. So I think that a lot of people take this process really seriously when I think it's something you can really have fun with. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's so true, especially the stuff about taking it too seriously. I'm not going to be a person who says it doesn't matter, right? I do a podcast about it. Clearly it matters. But... Part about part of this process is you kind of ordering through four years of high school and thinking through what's important, what's not, what do I like, what do I not like, and so you can get you know really into thinking through okay, how will admissions officers take this? What are they thinking about this? And at the end of the day, you don't really know what they're going to take it as, so you should just kind of do whatever you think fits you the best. Because at the end of the day, I feel like you will like that more than if you manufactured some image of yourself. Because you never know what's going to happen. So you might as well do what makes you feel like this application actually represents you. And I feel like the the issue is that if you don't do that, then if you get accepted, then why like I think that it brings back to the question like why are you there like should you really be there because if you weren't really who you are then they admitted someone who isn't who you are like you'll I think you'll always feel a little bit out of place and I think that I think it's better to not get into any of your dream schools but by being yourself as opposed to being someone who you're not and getting into all the schools that you'd ever dreamed of and I think that my mom actually asked me this question yesterday she said if you could do it again and if you could like change everything that you've done and get into Brown, would you? And I said, no, because I don't think that that's really the way that the world is. And I don't think it's healthy for people who are like 18 or in high school to obsess over like one place right. and try to change who they are. I think that's, it's, it's fundamentally wrong. And I think it's a lot of things like, I don't know, cosmetic surgery, you're changing the way you look on the outside. Well, in a way, when you fa- manufacture your application, you're kind of like doing that to yourself on the inside doing all these things that you don't really enjoy just because you think that they'll look good in an application. Yeah. No, like, I think that's a perfect analogy, um, and it makes a lot of sense to me. I do wonder, though, when, when it, if we come back to like how you made the decision, particularly when it came to the Stanford question, um, my take on prestige is, I think, a little bit different than yours. I think you know prestige has value uh, because 
you know, the way we live in this world is we interact with other people and the name effect of a school is different. And, you know, for your high school, Mm -hmm. I know you said that Bowdoin, you know, is a much bigger name than Harvard because you had, you know, history with that school. But I think in general, the reaction you get from like a Harvard is, is different than the reaction you get if you were saying like, oh, I go to like my local university. And, you know, we can discuss whether that's good or bad, like whether mm-hmm. Harvard actually deserves the prestige it does. I, I probably think it doesn't. Like, I probably think the quality of education is not substantially greater and the type of kid you're getting in Harvard or out of Harvard is not like for sure and guaranteed to be better than any other student at any other school. But I think just as a, just as like a claim about the way the world works, there's something valuable about the first reaction to that name. I do. I, I, I completely get what you're saying. So this is actually, if you want to know the exact reason why I chose to go to Bowdoin over Stanford. Um, so this summer I'm going to be at Stanford. I'm taking two classes. And so I wanted to have a lab position. And so I emailed like 50 professors. I just copy and pasted. Hi, I'm Alexandra. I really want to work in your lab. Da, 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 da. And so I emailed about 52 professors and only one responded. And he was a Bowdoin alum. <laughs> Um, he was a Rhodes Scholar. He like got his PhD from Harvard. He was really accomplished. And he was actually the head of one of the departments and the head of a lab. And he responded with this really nice email. And I never even said that I was going to Bowdoin next year. And I think that that, that that was the reason why I chose the school is because I think that a lot of schools stand for different things. And for me, like Bowdoin is founded on the common good. It's like a like the admissions officers like select for one trait and it's kindness. Wow. And I feel like at a school like Harvard that I would never have gotten that like like the like brown flex for specific traits like barnard's flex for specific traits like um, pomona does too i just think that going to a small school like that that's known for specific traits i think it really creates a community that even though not even though no one will know the name like the people who you spend your time with or like the alumni will come and it, like will really be there for you when you need it and i feel like that's something that's really amazing I think it comes back to that word we talked about when talking about growing up in a small town, community, Mm -hmm. right? The level of community you're going to get at a small school is, I think, different than the type of community you're going to get at a big school. You know, like going to Columbia. Columbia is a fairly big school when it comes to the undergraduate population. Then you throw on grad students and and like non-traditional students in the School of General Studies. It's a lot of people. So you're never going to know everybody on campus you're not even going to know everybody in your dorm or maybe not even everybody in, you know, the massive lecture you're going to sit in your first, you know, couple of semesters. So I guess it really is about the type of education you want. So do you think the the small school aspect of, of Bowdoin played a role in your decision? So at first I was like kind of terrified really? just to think that, oh, like if I mess up, then I'll never be able to live it down. Like, oh, if something happened, then then like they'll all forever be, yeah. I remember freshman year, my pants ripped. I never lived, I haven't lived that down for like two years. So I knew like, I knew, I knew that like, the thing is, I think on the other hand, I was talking to um, the girl that currently goes to Bowdoin. And I think that, so she was saying how she went to visit Berkeley and she was with some of her friends. And so she walked across the, the court, like the quad and she didn't, and then no one, none of the people that she were with, was with, like, were, was with, like, they didn't recognize anyone when they were walking across the quad. But at Bowdoin, when she's walking across the quad, she, like, recognizes, like, at least one person. But at the same time, she doesn't recognize, like, a lot of people. So even though the school is, like, I think Bowdoin's 1,800 people, it feels small. But on the other hand, there's still, like, so many people that you still don't know. Like, you can't know 1,800 right. people. And so I feel like it's, 
I think that it, it allows you, on the other hand, to kind of, I don't know, have a different type of experience. But, but, but on the other hand, when you go to a school like Columbia, you can join like different groups to like make your experience right. smaller, like joining a fraternity or sorority or joining a club. So I just I think it totally depends on like how you want your college experience. I definitely do think that going to a liberal arts college, I think that as opposed to a large university, there's something that's extremely different. It's just the class size and I think the access to professors. So I was talking to my friend at NYU and she said that she's actually never spoken to any of her professors. Yeah, not not like spoken, like TAs maybe, but like never actually spoken to any professors. And so when I went to Bowdoin for a mid weekend, I sat down and had dinner with the head of government two days in a row. I got to walk the head of film's dog. <laughs> um, I got to babysit the head of like um, one of the history professors' children while he went to like do something. Wait, really? And that was just as a, that was just as like not even as a committed student, just as an admitted student. Yeah, and like I got to meet the head of economics and eat ice cream with her and the one of the seniors who won the senior prize. And I feel like at an institution like Bowdoin, especially we're famous for like our really good food and our great um, like quality of life. The, actually, the professors are incentivized to eat with the students. So often if classes end near dinner time or near lunchtime, they'll just go with their students and go get food and talk about what they were talking about in class. And I feel like at other schools, um, even though you can make your student community smaller, I don't think you can really make your connections with the professors smaller. I feel like that's something that's really special and unique to small liberal arts colleges. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. You know, I have gotten lunch with one professor, my Chinese professor, and that's because the department gives him a stipend uh, to like take mm-hmm. us out once a semester, right? <laughs> so, so he's just getting free food. Right? <laughs> so it's definitely not like a like a regular thing. And I don't think any of our professors mm-hmm. would go to a dining hall. <laughs> um, <laughs> although I will say, Columbia was ranked in some some study of some sort that we were the number one dining hall in the nation. So. I don't know which study that I don't know was, either. but I'd like to dispute it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we're infamous for Malcolm Gladwell, who destroyed our school because our food was too good. <laughs> wait, wait, he destroyed your school for the food being too good? So he didn't destroy it, but he like, so he, there's, so there's a podcast on revisionist history called Food Fight, and he compares Vassar and Bowdoin and compares their food and then their amount of Pell Grant recipients. So Vassar has twice the number of Pell Grant recipients as Bowdoin, but they have like twice as bad food. <laughs> so therefore, food quality and Pell Grant recipient population is obviously correlated. Uh, okay, um, Malcolm Gladwell. Well, according to Gladwell, yeah. Okay. But um, I think that actually that was one of the other main reasons why I chose Bowdoin. So Bowdoin and like Williams and Amherst and Pomona and some schools like that are actually extremely generous in financial aid. Bowdoin has one of the highest endowments per student, and I feel like a lot of the other smaller boards college has very high endowments per student, just because I think that a lot of the alumni, when they leave, they give back. So Bowdoin is like the second, tied with Williams, of like alumni giving rates. I think it's just because when you leave, you just really feel a connection to the institution. Do you feel like when you leave Columbia, you still feel like that really tight connection to Columbia? I mean, some people do, obviously. You know, our endowment is substantial probably more substantial than it needs to be if i'm really being honest (laughs) um but you know there's a huge thing at columbia that's just like there is a lack of community and the reason that people give for it is that it's in the city so you know people go out into the city to do their things they don't stay on campus Mm -hmm. um which you know i think could be true for some people might not be true for other people but it's definitely like a complaint you hear a lot from people Mm-hmm. I feel like it's definitely something that I see at like a lot of schools that are urban, so they just don't have that same sense of community. 
that you can get it somewhere that's more rural. Um, like especially a school like NYU where you're actually built into the city. Like you have your your dorm, then you have an office building, then you have like someone's apartment, and then you have your classroom and maybe another dorm. Right? Like it's literally built into a part of the city. There's no well-defined campus. And for a school like that, you know, I just think it's incredibly hard to really create something cohesive because you're not really a campus, you're in the city, right? Yeah. And I think it really brings question like what are colleges and like how are they different? Because in a way like NYU is in no way your traditional right, college right. experience. It's completely different. And I think that that's something really interesting like how even though institutions like can be ranked closely, they're extremely yeah. different in so many different ways. Yeah, and I think that's why it's really hard to make a decision or really bad to make a decision just on rankings, right? That was my my father. He actually really wanted me to go to Wellesley because it was number three on US News <laughs> report. And this is before I got off Stanford waitlist. And then, but Bowdoin was only number only five. Number so five. obviously, so obviously it was not as prestigious, but according to him. But I think that it really, like, I, I, I went and looked into rankings and the way that we rank schools as oh, well. Oh, for sure. I think that's really questionable. Like 25% of the rankings are derived from peer reputation so what, what is that, that? what does your peer reputation mean yeah and it's other admission heads of admissions ranking schools and how prestigious they perceive them to be which i don't really care about i'll be real honest with you like i don't care what admissions officers think about other schools i care about what mm-hmm. i think about other schools <laughs> and i yeah i think that's something that's really difficult to like start to question um why schools are good and like what makes them yeah. good but i think that honestly when it came down to it, I think that nowadays, like with the admissions process and the admissions scandals and all the things that right, are going right. on, like I was unlucky, and I don't know if you heard about this, but Grinnell and Oberlin both were hacked, hacked? and like people's social security numbers. Yeah, they were their social security numbers were leaked. My address got leaked, oh my and my God. application was held for ransom by Bitcoin. It was horrible. What? Wait, wait, but by, by, going by Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. So I was. I can send you the email later if you want, what? Michael. But they, so some some hackers hacked into the Grinnell um, admission system, and they had like my subject test scores and my ACT and my address. And they said, if you want for like one Bitcoin, you can buy your decision with like two months before it comes out. And although it was kind of tempting, <laughs> I decided not to. But a lot of like things, I felt like I was I was talking to my my That's one of my crazy. friends, and I, honestly, this admissions process was like a, I could make a feature length film about it. First that, and then the Lori Laughlin, oh, Laughlin, plus yeah. Felicity Huffman scandal. And I think that's like actually the reason why I think I decided to choose Bowdoin was that when you, when I when like when I talk to people who went to Stanford and you ask them like, oh, what can your school do better? They don't. They say like, no, there's something that our school can really do better. We're like perfect. But when I went to Bowdoin, like, I think that it was one of the only institutions that I, like, visited that actually strive to be a better mm-hmm. school. And so, like, a few, like, last year, they were, like, criticized for not having enough students in, from Maine. And this year, they've increased it by three times. Wow. They were criticized for not being eco-friendly. And this, then they're going to be eco like, they're going to go carbon neutral by 2020. And they were one of the first schools. I think that also another question, I don't want to di- divert the topic of the yeah, podcast, but of um, test optional schools. It's, it's, I didn't apply test optional, but Bowdoin is like one of the only, like, um, it's, I think it might be along with UChicago, the only need, um, need blind test optional school. Um, and I think that it's really interesting that 
I think it definitely there's a different type of student because I think like Bowdoin and Middlebury and Bowdoin and Dartmouth are pretty similar in their student bodies fundamentally but I think that where they differ is just that need line test optional aspect I think it completely changes the type of institution that it ends up being even though like they're they're pretty similar in their like stereotypes but like I think that after they did that and they became need blind and test option I think it completely changed what type of people that they attract I think that's really amazing yeah you know and I think I think when people talk about the culture of a school at first, especially when I was writing these white college supplements, I kind of scoffed and was like, okay, that's what admissions officers say. But thinking through it now <laughs> and actually going to a college, I think it definitely is true that the cultures are different. So, they really are, yeah. Like, the, the one thing I can say about Columbia is it is absolutely very politically active. Like, there is some protest mm-hmm. going on every single day someplace on campus and so even if it's like something i don't really care about um, i think it's just so interesting that there's somebody who cares about it and somebody who's pumped up about it enough to hold up a sign and and march down you know college walk our our main you know sidewalk area um yelling about it i think that's so cool whereas i don't think you're gonna get that at you know for instance my the local school here university of texas at dallas you don't see a protest every day or even every Mm -hmm. week or even every month there. Um, And especially when it comes to the, you know, the thing you said about the administration being receptive to change. I think in general, if you talk to a lot of like student government people at most schools, they're going to say, oh, the administration, oh, they could do so many things better. And part of it is just, I think that's the student's job is to make complaints and ask the university to do better. But I do think there is something to be said about how well the university responds So Mm -hmm. Columbia is very well known for the university not responding and just like ignoring. Yeah. The mattress girl. Mattress girl. The stuff now going on in Manhattanville, the new campus we're building in Harlem and the gentrification and the problems that cause in that community versus a school, you know, like in my experience, UVA. Or Swarthmore. Swarthmore is, yeah, definitely another. Current current issues going on with that, yeah. Yeah. The Swarthmore thing is interesting, right? Like, there was a frat that Mm -hmm. shut themselves down because of the sexual assault Mm -hmm. issues. I feel like they could only happen at a school like Swarthmore. Um, how do you feel about fraternities, Michael? Just a quick question. Just wondering. Uh, I will... All right. I'm, I'm a little mixed because there are obviously huge problems with fraternities, like sexual assault and rape are bad. And fraternities, on average, have a lot more of those cases than, than just like the normal student population, which is awful. And just anecdotally, like stories about frat parties going to maybe like a frat party. It's just like, you see it, it's just like awful. And, you know, there's so many problems. And the other thing is like, there's a cult, there is like a frat boy culture where it's just like, oh, you know, let's go drink. We're at a party. Let's do whatever. And of course, it's not all people in fraternities and sororities. Of course, it's not everybody in even particular frats, but there is absolutely a culture of that, which is why you see on average systemically more incidents of assault and harassment because of frat, like at frats. Uh, But at the same time, kind of just like self-interestedly joining a frat, there are connections there that are very, very useful. You know, like Mm -hmm. if you think about all these presidents, they've been a part of all these secret societies at Yale, like Skull and Bones or whatever, final clubs at Harvard. And so I don't really know. I I think frats need to do better when it comes to issues of rape and assault. But I also understand 
why individuals might choose to join them. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. And I do, yeah, and I do think that I know a lot of people who joined them, like, single, people who, like, didn't have siblings growing up. And you do really get, like, a community, yeah. again, like, that you wouldn't get in any, in any different situation because you, like, live living so close to people. Um, but, yeah, I think it's also, it's interesting when schools choose to shut down frats. So I know, like, that's a, a, a upcoming trend that's occurring, too. Um yeah. There, there was this really weird story about Columbia in the 60s that the administration actually called the police on the frats. Um, not for any good reason, like not because they were trying to deal with rampant sexual assault and rape. I think it was just because there was like some deal there and it was too loud. <laughs> oh. And so Columbia wanted to also like take control of the brownstones that the frats had owned. Um, so good move. Wrong intentions. <laughs> Yeah, through questionable yes. means. Calling the police on their own students. <laughs> oh. There's some there's some stories there. And so yeah, um I think that also, as we were saying before, I think that it's really difficult when I think you first like start a school or you first go to a new place to kind of see what is what. It's like when you first get somewhere like how like without knowing or talking to other students, like I don't think that if you like were first to rush a uh, fraternity or sorority, like how would you know what is like the place where a lot of like sexual assaults happen or the place that's like known for being very academic. I think it's really difficult. I think that like you have to eventually just find those things out. I was talking to my mom who said when she was in she accidentally joined like a Jewish fraternity <laughs> or sorority and not being Jewish, she just didn't oh, know. No. And it was, and she had a very Jewish sounding last name, and it was just completely accidental. And she eventually realized, oh, oops, this is not the right place for me. So, what ended up happening? I think she ended. I don't know actually. I should probably ask her. Um, <laughs> That's yeah. hilarious. I think she might have just stayed in it. I'm pretty sure. I feel like it'd be a little awkward to kick her out for it, <laughs> right? Yeah, because what would that be? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would probably have to think on that one, but, like, I just feel like it'd be too awkward for, for like, the leadership to do. Um, mm. Although I will say, like, if you're interested in frat life, I think definitely asking people around, like, what the reputation of the frat is, particularly older students. Um, I also mm. think, you know, there's, like, a quote-unquote rushing process where you meet members of the frat and you kind of have to, like... This is another thing I hate about frats and sororities and, and Greek life. You have to, like mingle and like make yourself look impressive and there's like a selection process which feels super weird to me it's like i have to audition to be your friend like this this mm -hmm. this this feels uncomfortable at the very least um uh, but at, at the very least during that process you probably will get a feel of of what the uh frat is kind of like and i think that's not to plug my school too much. sorry <laughs> no please um, school pride is great in 2000 um Bowdoin, uh they uh, dismantled the flat frats so we don't have frats and we have college houses and so the way that you become a part of the college houses so when you're a freshman you get randomly sorted into college houses and that's like you're part of that house for the first year and then you have the option to live in that actual house and the way that you get selected is that you have to propose like college programming events and things that you would do while living in that house and I think that that's something that's a lot more productive yeah. in that I think that it's like that like showing the skills that you'll like actually bring and like how you'll help the community as opposed to just like how friendly in the popularity contest that occurs and i feel like it's it ends up actually being a lot more inclusive yeah. 
I think, you know, I, I'm really jealous of systems like that and, you know, kind of similarly Yale's residential college system where there just mm-hmm. is just a closer knit community as a result of housing, right? Like it is actually very well thought out. It sounds like in, in Bowdoin's case, you know, where, which college house mm-hmm. you're going to to go to because you actually have to, you know, discuss what you're interested in and what you're interested in doing. Whereas most of the time for housing at Columbia, for most people at least, you just kind of pick which one has the big rooms in AC. You know, there's a few... Yeah, I know, I know my friends, they met each other on College Confidential and their roommates now at Barnard. <laughs> so I don't think there's much of a... I don't think they do much pairing. But again, um, I think it's pretty... Like you're saying, it's it's. I think that housing and community are such important questions that we have to think about when we're think, talking about colleges. Because not only are there places where you're like learning and getting a degree, but also there are like places that you're going to be living for four years and like very transformative times in your life. You know, to sum it up, I think, you know, people making the decision between an LAC liberal arts college and maybe something bigger or just thinking about where they want to apply to rather than just like picking the names, you know, think about what type of school you want to go to. You know, what are the things you have to have and what's the type of community you want to live in? And I think it, depends for different people like i think i personally might enjoy some aspects of a you know tighter knit community but i also enjoy being in a a big city right and so i have to weigh that trade-off and eventually i you know obviously chose columbia the big city went over um and i think i i made the right choice but it just depends on what you want in your college and and your college community Mm -hmm. completely Do you have any last words of advice to, to anybody thinking about liberal arts colleges? I think definitely think about, don't, I think don't be afraid to go somewhere that you don't originally think would be the place for you. If you would have told me like five or six months ago that I would be going to a small school in rural Maine, I would think you were crazy. <laughs> but I think now after learning about it more and I think just giving places a shot, um, I think that a lot of preconceived notions that we have about schools can sometimes be wrong and I think that just not judging a book by its cover is really important so I think going into this process open-minded and really being looking to explore and to try to think about where you'll be happy not where your parents or where like other people will be happy that you're going but where you'll actually thrive I think that's one of the most important things in this process yeah I think that is a great last piece of advice to kind of end the podcast on thank you so much Alexandra for coming on the admissions uncovered podcast it's been a lot of fun Thank you for having me. Of course. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Admissions Uncovered podcast. My usual plug here, go over to your Instagram, open the app right now, and type in at admissions.uncovered. That's our Instagram. We post some pictures with college advice and sometimes, actually fairly regularly now, we post college admissions memes. So if you want to see some memes about college admissions, head over to our Instagram at admissions.uncovered. We're also on Twitter at AUPodFM and on Facebook at admissions.uncovered. With that, thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next week.